Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a polyp, but what kind of polyp? On this episode, we were joined by the Master of Optical Evaluations of Polyps, Dr. Rob Bashara. Dr. Bashara is an advanced therapeutic endoscopist at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and he gave us a masterclass on how to look at polyps and assess what kind of polyp it is. This is an essential primer on important macroscopic and microscopic polyp characteristics and evaluation, and really is a must-listen for anyone who does endoscopy, whether you're a surgeon or a gastroenterologist. Also, don't miss his really unique experience training in Japan and how we might learn about our own training models in the process. For anyone listening to this as a podcast version, make sure to head over to our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash coldsteelsurgery to see all of Rob's really neat videos and pictures. And finally, don't forget to check out Rob's YouTube channel. Links, as always, in the description. Dr. Bashara, thank you so much for joining us on the Cold Steel podcast. It's uh, truly an honor to have you on the show. Can you tell our audience a little bit about uh, where you grew up and where you did your training? Sure. Um, so yeah, thanks again for, for inviting me to It's really a, a pleasure and uh, I hope uh, you and our viewers find it useful. Um, so I did uh, my training in terms of my undergraduate in medicine in uh, Toronto. And subsequent to that, I did my internal medicine training and GI training here uh, in Kingston at Queen's University. I then went to St. Mike's and did uh, therapeutic training for a year. And then I went to um, Tokyo in uh, Toyosu uh, Hospital at Shore University. and did, a, did about uh, 14, 15 months of third space training and um, magnifying endoscopy training. And I came back here in about 2015 and have been uh, working here since then. That's an amazing training pathway. How did you get involved or hear about Japan or what, what was the impetus to go to Japan? Was there a pre-existing connection between uh, Toronto or Queens and Japan or how did that kind of come about? So I was actually um, interested in some of the advanced endoscopy techniques in terms of the optical diagnosis and kind of at the time, which was the tissue resection with endoscopic submucosal dissection since uh, internal medicine. Um, and then when I was doing internal medicine, I had decided to go to some conferences uh, abroad. Um, so including uh, some conferences in uh, Korea, some in uh, Japan, and um, basically found that, you know, a lot of the stuff that was done in advanced endoscopy was kind of initiated in Japan. So I started going to a few more of those conferences and I uh, met different people. Um, and I met uh, uh, Dr. Haruhiro Inoue and... Um, you know, just kind of talked with him and kind of became friends with him. And we subsequently um, set up my fellowship afterwards, but I just kind of, just through interest, um, started going to different places. And that's really how I, uh, I ended up going to, to Japan uh, for the, the fellowship training. What was that experience like? How How is going to Japan different than what you'd seen here in Canada? Yeah, so it's uh, it's very different. So for for multiple reasons. So obviously it's a you know different language, different culture. Um, 
And in terms of just endoscopy, just the way endoscopy is practiced there, it was um, extremely different in terms of the culture kind of um, makes its way into, into practice in terms of medicine. So just the attention to detail and the, how meticulous they are just with every endoscopic examination um, and the ability to detect things that, you know, we wouldn't even notice. Um, so just the, you know, your basic diagnostic exam, I was just amazed at the amount of detail that, that, the, that they would appreciate and that they would examine. Um, and, and that, as I said, just the, the culture kind of making its way into endoscopy. Um, and just in terms of obviously, you know, work, uh, culture, it's a, quite different there. So similar to, you know, whether they're into, whether it's work or music or um, just the amount of uh, dedication that there is um, in that area. So they really kind of go all the way, you know, with whatever it is that they decide to do, whether it's, as I said, music, art, literature, medicine. So, and again, that just went in, uh, um, was the same in, in, in endoscopy. So it was just kind of like the, the dedication and the amount of work and effort that's kind of put into it. It's just uh, a different magnitude as, you know, compared to us, even though we all work very hard, but it's just a different level of uh, kind of dedication that I found there. What was the structure like? And like, what was a typical day like for you when you were doing your training in, in Japan? Well, so in terms of one of the interesting things in terms of the structure, which I thought was extremely uh, beneficial, was that um, the the services were set up into teams. So we didn't have gastroenterology and surgery in terms of being separate teams. Uh, so we had the upper GI team, which consisted of surgeons and gastroenterologists. And it really took me a long time to find out who was a surgeon, who's a gastroenterologist, because we basically rounded together uh, in the morning. So, you, you know, you come in early, depending on if there are advanced cases in the morning. So I'd usually come in, you know, anywhere from five to six and make sure everything's set up. Um, and then we'd go round together as a team. So it would be, uh, for example, you know, the, the, the surgeons and gastroenterologists rounding together, seeing the patients. Um, and as I said, you wouldn't know who's who's who. And in, in that regard, you know, after rounding, you know, we start the procedures. Um, and again, it may be a gastroenterologist or a surgeon in terms of the endoscopic procedures. And, um, you know, depending on the day, you may have anywhere from kind of uh, three to five third space procedures. Um, and then depending some mm -hmm. diagnostic procedures um, kind of interspersed throughout uh, the day. Um, and then at the end of the day, again, kind of rounding on all the patients together as a team. Um, and after that, probably doing a fair bit of work till the evening time. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the typical day. But I thought one of the uh, amazing things was the structure in terms of, you know, your upper GI team. So a patient comes in with a foregut issue, you have surgeons and gastroenterologists on the same team. Um, and basically the patient got kind of the, the treatment that they needed, uh, very quickly. And it wasn't necessarily based on, well, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist, so this is what I can do. So this is the way we're going to go, or I'm a surgeon and doing it that way. It was basically discussed openly between the, the, you know, the surgeons and gastroenterologists who are on the same team, on the same service. And really the, the, the treatment is kind of decided together and it happens in a lot more um, efficient uh, manner and more kind of, kind of comprehensive manner. 
Yeah, it's such a different way model, but obviously, like it's a it's a very comprehensive way of providing care for a patient with a specific anatomy, you know, specific problem, as opposed to you know exactly who who sees who first, right? So that mm -hmm. which happens so often in Canada, where the treatment gets determined by who you see first. You know, if you have pancreatitis, Absolutely. you see a gastroenterologist versus the surgeon first. You know, often the treatments can be quite different. What what was the training um, sort of paradigm like in Japan? Was that you know you talk about the intensity, but how how was there any differences in terms of training styles for trainees? Yeah, so I find the you know in terms of training there, it's really a a stepwise training model, and it goes all the way from you know very basic things. So you know I had already completed gastroenterology and advanced therapeutic endoscopy at St. Mike's. Um, which is, you know, one of the leading therapeutic centers in, in the world. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go there and just start doing cases right away. And they'll be so amazed at how, uh, you know, how good I am, right? But, you know, um, you kind of have to swallow your pride and really go from the fundamentals. So the first thing I did was really just set up the room. So once I was able to set up the room properly, um, then, you know, I can start assisting some of the, more junior staff and then once I'm a good assistant and then I can start assisting you know um, professor anyway and then when I can assist him appropriately and I'm a good assistant in that regard then I can start doing cases so you really have to know the equipment and in terms of the 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 details of being a good assistant um, because part of being a good assistant is basically being able to watch the procedure and predict what the next thing is and what they're going to want and what issues are going to arise so you can be a most kind of efficient assistant. So, um, you know, doing that was extremely beneficial um, in terms of, again, just learning the procedures and subsequently when coming back here, being able to teach uh, our assistants and fellows as well. So, you know, after becoming, being able to assist appropriately uh, and efficiently and, and to a high degree of quality, then I would start doing the, the cases, uh, whether it's tissue resection or um, endoscopic myotomies, that sort of thing, and start doing those. So that was kind of the, the, the training model. And in terms of it's, uh, you know, just the, the, the procedures, just in terms of how we practice here and kind of the traditional modes of tissue resection, uh, the movements and everything is a lot more on a, a macroscopic scale. So starting there and doing those procedures, just realizing how slow and how purposeful and controlled everything has to be as compared to kind of what we've traditionally done in, in, in therapeutic endoscopy uh, was a adjustment, but it's been you know, extremely useful in kind of all my practice. So um, that, that's kind of how the training was there in, in a nutshell. <clears throat> yeah, one thing I've noticed, uh, obviously seeing you in endoscopy suite is that when I come in the morning, you're already there often and you're setting up the checking the equipment, setting things yeah. up exactly the way you, you want. And one, one of the things that I actually found extremely um, maybe underappreciated here is that all these little tiny incremental benefits and attention to these little things in terms of uh, quality or the procedure, all these little incremental benefits and incremental um optimizations in the end make a very big difference. Um, so whether it's the positioning in terms of how you hold the scope in terms of 
ensuring you know you clean things appropriately um, all these little incremental benefits make a difference in terms of you know you may have a procedure that's difficult um, that if you have all these optimizations and incremental things that you kind of pay attention to the procedure ends up being easy or if you have a procedure that's you know instead of it being very difficult it's moderately difficult or if it's impossible or kind of unsuccessful um, again all those little benefits will make it a doable procedure so all those little incremental benefits and attention to detail i think makes a big difference in terms of the the outcome and i think that's something that we um traditionally have been kind of lacking here in terms of some of those um small details and optimizations well that's just fantastic uh, rob Rob, uh, you know, the, the reason why we brought you on the podcast, uh, among many, many reasons, is we wanted to delve into with, to you, with you uh, on, in, in terms of one of the areas of your expertise, which is optical evaluation of polyps. Um, mm -hmm. So if you don't mind just sharing your screen, and for all Absolutely. our audio listeners, uh, I'd really encourage you to kind of check out the YouTube version of this podcast because uh, Dr. Bashar is going to share some slides and Obviously, this is the talk on optical evaluation. So obviously, the pictures are, are going to be helpful here. Um, and uh, Dr. Shara, take it away. And just maybe walk us through um, some of the basics around optical or endoscopic examination of clonic polyps. All right. So um, as I said, I'm really going to go kind of just over some of the fundamentals. It won't be uh, as uh, exhaustive as, uh, as it can be, but hopefully just some of the basics fundamentals of optical examination of uh, colonic polyps and lesions. So we're going to go over the macroscopic, microscopic exam, and some of the high-risk gross morphologic features, and the NICE classification, uh, which uh, hopefully some people have heard of, and the JNIT classification, um, which people may not be familiar with, but I'll briefly mention it and kind of knowing why it's there and the advantages of it. So we'll go over some cases and then the macroscopic exam, the microscopic exam, and then some of the, um, uh, we'll go back to the cases again and kind of see what we hopefully have, uh, have learned. <clears throat> so and usually I kind of go over the different classifications and see what, what people are familiar with. This is probably the one that people are most familiar with, but um, as I said, we'll kind of skip over this part. So why do we care about optical diagnosis? So this is just a, a nice study out of the Netherlands that showed uh, about three and a half thousand colonoscopies um, and about 92 T1 colorectal cancers um, were diagnosed. So of the 39% that were correctly recognized as cancer endoscopically, um, only 11% went on to require surgical resection. However, of the 61% that were not correctly recognized uh, as cancer, 41% went on to have surgical resection, and the vast majority of the surgical resections were due to piecemeal removal and inability to uh, evaluate the, the margins. So this just shows what we kind of already know is that, um, you know, proper uh, pre-resection diagnosis uh, avoids uh, patients getting unnecessary surgery for kind of in, inappropriately uh, piecemeal removal of, of uh, superficial cancers. So we'll start with a case. Um, so this is just a lesion seen um, in the ascending colon. And whatever um, endoscopy platform you have, all of them have some element of 
imaged enhanced endoscopy, whether it's uh, Olympus, Pentax, Fujifilm, they all have very similar technologies um, with slight variation, but they allow you to use various techniques to examine um, lesions. So we're just kind of getting closer to the lesion and examining it with a bit of magnification, which again, all platforms at this point have um, some form of it available. So kind of looking at this lesion, um, you know, I'll ask you, Amir, in terms of what do you think? Is this just kind of a low-grade adenoma? Is this something with high-grade or superficial carcinoma, or is it a deeply invasive carcinoma? <laughs> oh, boy. I've been getting put on the spot. All right. Well, to me, uh, looking at it, it doesn't look like it has super, you know, very disorganized uh, features. I must admit, you know, I've read about these pit, kudo pit patterns, but have it's hard sometimes to keep them all straight. But it doesn't look like it's like, um, doesn't look like a cancer, a deeply invasive cancer okay. to me. It looks fairly small. Um, that might be a part of the reason why I'm saying that. Um, now, I, I don't know that this would, uh, I can confidently say that this is low-grade dysplasia or high-grade dysplasia, but I'm going to go with uh, low-grade dysplasia. It doesn't look particularly worrisome to my eye. So I think that's some of the stuff we're going to go over in terms of, you know, a lot of it, you know, is, is kind of subconscious pattern recognition. And we kind of know that when we see something, like, yeah, this is definitely a cancer, or this is definitely a low-grade adenoma, but we can't really explain why and part of it is just getting that kind of conscious competence and kind of going through a systematic exam which we'll go over um and you know in the cases where things are not so clear is really being able to make a more accurate prediction of what those lesions are most things are usually at the extremes in terms of you know a grossly invasive carcinoma or a benign polyp but we do enough procedures that there's going to be stuff in the middle where we're not really sure and it will really help in those instances in terms of um, making the appropriate um, choice in those instances. So here's another case. Um, so this is a lesion in the uh, rectum. Um, and again, we go kind of through the same process, examining it grossly, and we do whatever image enhanced modalities we have. And, and then we'll kind of go more closely to the lesion and examine it in a bit more detail. So just skip a bit here in terms of until we get into the um, finer examination. And now we're just a bit more close and using a bit of magnification and trying to so get is, a bit more. Rob, is this level of magnification? Because I know you have a scope that, that really <coughs> can magnify. Is this, yep. You're not using that scope. Like this is something that is available on pretty much every platform. Uh, this does, uh, these particular scopes have um, formal magnification on them. Um, so the degree of magnification is uh, much higher, but whether, as I said, it's, you know, any of the platforms currently, they have an element of, of magnification that can be used. There'll be varying degrees of the magnification, but they all have um, some element of magnification where you can get really the same information, although higher magnification may give you a bit more confidence in some of the instances, but, um, is that all of them have an element of magnification. <clears throat> so, yeah. uh, so I'll ask you, Amir, so how about this lesion in terms of um, what do you think it is? So this one, I'm more concerned that this is a deeply invasive mm -hmm. carcinoma for a couple of reasons. One, it's bigger. 
um, I'd say at least kind of two centimeters. So that's one thing. Second thing is that that central depression in the middle, that makes me concerned that this is uh, a cancer. Um, uh, now, is it is it more deeply invasive, like a T2? That I I don't know. And sometimes, actually, I, I have to say, I, I as a colorectal surgeon, I rely on my finger mm -hmm. um, for a rectal lesion to try to make that differentiation. But I'd certainly be concerned that this is a, a, an invasive cancer. I don't think this is a high-grade dysplasia or a low-grade dysplasia. I think this is an invasive cancer. Okay. And we'll just go to the last case. So this, again, is a lesion in the rectum. And again, same systematic exam, just like, you know, when you see your patient, you have your history, physical, you know, labs, your endoscopic exam should be approached in the same way in terms of just a systematic exam, um, such that, again, you don't miss things. Just like when you have a patient and you may see them walking in, you know, that's the diagnosis just based on how they're kind of walking in, limping in, et cetera. Um, but you still go through your systematic process and every so often you're surprised and you find something that maybe not wasn't uh, what you expect. So, um, just for the sake of time, I, I, I won't, uh, I won't really again about it, but again, kind of <laughs> look at the, the different appearance and um, some of the different areas where we have a bit of a higher magnification and uh, getting those details. So uh, now I'll just briefly move on to some of the examination. So we have the macroscopic assessment. The Pierce classification is, is quite old now, um, and it's basically just a way in terms of describing the gross um, morphology of, the, of a polyp or anything in the GI tract, because it can also be used for the upper GI tract. But basically you have three main categories, protruding type, flat type, and excavated type. The protruding type is made essentially of your 1P, so your pedunculated polyps, your 1S, which are in the colon, are basically gonna be polyps that have an elevation greater than two and a half millimeters. And this can be estimated based on kind of, you know, roughly a closed biopsy forcep is about two and a half millimeters. Then you have your flat polyps. So you're completely flat, which is a 2B lesion. You're slightly elevated, which is a 2A lesion. Um, and you're slightly depressed, which is a 2C lesion. And this, this classification is generally for superficial GI neoplasia. So excavated lesions, we generally don't see in superficial colorectal neoplasia. So generally, if something's excavated in the colon, it's already massively invasive. However, you can sometimes see these lesions um, that are excavated, that are superficial in the upper GI tract. So Rob, one thing that confused me when I first saw this is why why is there the zero before the, like, what does that mean? The, why it, it basically has to do with the, 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 the it, it's for the description of superficial neoplasia. Um, so I think there's some of the classifications for, for example, uh, more massively invasive lesions um, from the surgical literature. And they're like, their classification starts with like one. I think one is, uh, I'm not mistaken, the, the Borman classification, for example, upper GI cancers. Um, but it's just kind of the, the convention. And this was, you know, brought to North America in like the early 2000s, but it was been used in Japan for years prior to that. And it kind of uh, came together at this meeting in Paris uh, where it had surgeons, gastroenterologists, pathologists, oncologists, all kind of meeting and seeing where this classification um, could potentially be applied in, in the West and really has, has been 
kind of taken off from there. And it's, again, it, it's a relatively coarse uh, description, but in an attempt to try to add some objectivity in terms of descriptions of polyps. And, you know, it, for the most part, really what it does, it tells us kind of what we already know. 2C lesions, so lesions with depressions, which you already mentioned, you know, you have a higher degree suspicion of it having carcinoma in it. Um, so even smaller lesions with depressions, you can see, have not an insignificant risk of, of carcinoma in it. In terms of the, the other more um, sessile or protruding lesions, again, as they get larger, higher risk of carcinoma. So it's a very coarse, kind of quick and dirty uh, way of getting a rough idea of kind of what you're dealing with in terms of pathology. Next, I'll go over the LST classification, which is probably a bit more useful in terms of the ability to predict pathology and in terms of what you're going to do. So an LST, a laterally spreading tumor, is defined as uh, a lesion that's 10 millimeters or greater, but has a predominantly horizontal growth. So these big protruding kind of uh, lesions are, can't be used in this classification. So it's really only for the lesions that predominantly grow horizontally um, that are greater than 10 millimeters. So that's important to remember because this is often an area of, of uh, confusion. So you have four main categories. The laterally spreading tumor uh, that's granular and homogenous, the granular and mixed, non-granular flat, and the non-granular pseudodepressed. So the granular homogenous has this kind of nice, uniform, lumpy, bumpy, almost cloud-like appearance. The granular mixed has some element of that, but at least one dominant nodule. The non-granular has a smooth appearance, a smooth surface, and the flat is just that, completely flat, so just slightly elevated lesion. And then the pseudo-depressed, it actually has a depression, but why it's called pseudo-depressed is just, that's just, again, convention, but it has a slight depression there in the middle. So from this, you know, you can see the granular homogenous, the risk of submucosal invasive cancer is quite low. So 1% or less, even when they get larger. The granular mixed and the non-granular flat, they have an intermediate risk of uh, carcinoma. Um, and the pseudodepressed have a fairly high risk of uh, having carcinoma in them. And this also kind of correlates in terms of fibrosis. So the low, uh, or sorry, the homogenous have a low risk of fibrosis. So even when the lesions are three, four centimeters, they come off quite nicely and fairly easily with traditional EMR. The granular mixed are, have a bit more fibrosis in them, and they can be a bit more challenging to remove, as well as the non-granular flat. The pseudo-depressed are extremely difficult to remove, even when they're smaller, you know, two centimeters or one and a half centimeters. Um, these can be quite challenging to remove uh, correctly. Um, so these, even when they're smaller, I would think should be managed by someone who, who has a, some experience in advanced endoscopy. So lift, again, it correlates quite well. These lift very well. So uh, one of the reasons uh, why is that these granular homogenous and granular mixed, their muscularis mucosa is actually arranged kind of like an accordion. So when you inject underneath, it really elevates quite nicely. Whereas the non-granulars, their muscularis mucosa is flat. So these are the ones you'll traditionally inject and then you're like, oh, I injected too much. And now the snare is sliding off of them constantly um, because the muscularis mucosa is flat. And then when you lift, it's not a nice protuberant lift. It's very diffuse. Um, so that's something, again, to, to be uh, aware of when you're thinking about removing these lesions. And again, that correlates with resection difficulty. And this basically just says that, you know, uh, for the granular uh, mix type, when they do have 
submucosal invasive carcinoma, uh, the majority of them have deep invasion. Whereas the other lesions, when they have submucosal invasive carcinoma, it's about 50-50 in terms of those having superficial invasion uh, and those having deep invasion. So that's just, again, something that gives you a bit more of uh, information in terms of when you're deciding on resection techniques. So say that again. So Rob, just go back there for a second. So yeah, sure. the granular, so you, you said that the pseudodepressed ones have the greatest- The higher risk, the higher risk, risk. Of, of carcinoma. But but in this table that you're showing, this one shows the granular mixed have the, high, the highest risk of, oh no, okay, that's just the numbers. Okay, so it says 12%. Yeah. So 20.5% uh, of this pseudo-depressed are yeah. going to have a depth deeper degrees, invasion. Degrees, so it's about 50-50, which is the same for the non-granular flat. Again, 50-50 in terms of superficial versus deep and as well as the homogenous. But the granular mixed, for, for whatever reason, when they do have carcinoma, you know, the majority, probably 80 plus percent, end up being deeper than the superficial submucosa, um, which is something that I, I think... Surgeons probably know better than us, but this is kind of traditionally what's been taught in terms of the risk of lymph node metastasis. So, you know, up to SM1, so a thousand micrometers, the risk of lymph node metastasis generally is quite low. Whereas when you get into the deeper submucosa, um, the risk of lymph node metastasis is uh, increases. And, and those are the patients where traditionally weren't formal oncologic resection with lymph node dissection. Um, However, there is kind of data that's been coming out over the years when you correct for the tumor variables in terms of lymphovascular invasion, tumor budding, et cetera, um, that the risk of lymph node metastasis, even for deep invasion, may not necessarily be as high as we previously thought. Uh, and more recently, um, uh, this meta-analysis came out, which essentially showed that. So when you correct for all the variables, um, just the deep submucosal invasion on its own um, shows that the risk of lymph node metastasis is not as high as I kind of showed previously in that slide, uh, where you know those studies didn't necessarily correct for the tumor variables. So I suspect in the uh, down the line we may see some changes in the um, guidelines for curative resection uh, criteria. In other words, like for the malignant polyp, that's a T1 lesion. Maybe perhaps the, the, the this is going to go away. Uh, the depth of vision is going to go away as a, an indication to just go for a formal resection. Yeah, or at least, you know, having certain criteria where, you know, say an SM2 lesion, so greater than a thousand micrometers of invasion, um, but otherwise, you know, good tumor variables and depending on the size of the actual carcinoma, we may not necessarily automatically say you have to have a surgical resection. So, yeah. But that's still not uh, kind of formally recommended at this time. Yeah, so I think for the general surgery residents listening to this, this is a classic exam question that comes up all the time is malignant polyps and criteria for considering formal resection. So I think that was a great, great overview. So we'll kind of review this lesion together. So, you know, again, we have kind of the four main categories for these predominantly laterally spreading lesions. And we kind of grossly look at it first and we say, well, is it smooth or is it kind of lumpy bumpy? And this, you can see, it has these little bumps um, on it. So we say, well, it's a granular lesion. And then is it kind of homogenous or is it heterogeneous where you have kind of mixed morphology? So this, and we're going just based on gross morphology here, um, you see has these dominant nodules. So we'd say it's an LSTG mixed type 
Um, and we'd say it probably has an intermediate risk of having some element of carcinoma in it, just based on the gross examination. In this particular lesion, we, after we did a, a more detailed exam, we kind of thought, again, the risk of carcinoma was significant and it ended up, ended up being a SM1 carcinoma and it ended up being in the dominant nodule. So the granular mix type, when they do have carcinoma, uh, it tends to be in the dominant nodule. Um, so that's an important thing to, to, to be aware of as well. So this was a superficial carcinoma, otherwise good tumor variables, uh, and was a curative resection. And so when, another, yeah. Sorry, not to not to interrupt your flow here, but no, when no, no, you no. when you see a, a lesion like that, is that that probably changes your approach in terms of how you're going to endoscopic? Like, does that make you more likely to do an an EST? And can you just for perhaps the junior trainees, yeah. can you define some of these basic terms like EMR and EST? Yeah. So essentially, EST is a bit more you know similar to, um, for example, when you guys do your surgical resections, you're removing the lesion in one piece. The difference is that we're not removing kind of the wall. So we're just removing the epithelium. So for ESD, we basically use a tiny needle knife and essentially we incise around the lesion and then we get between the mucosal lesion or the superficially submucosal lesion and the muscularis propria. And then we slowly peel off fiber by fiber of the lesion in one piece. Um, so we get a much better kind of oncologic specimen in terms of if it's something we think there's cancer. Um, whereas EMR, you know, uh, like that previous lesion that we saw, if we removed it via EMR endoscopic mucosal resection, it's something where we would have removed in multiple pieces with a snare and injection. So we basically inject under the lesion to kind of lift it up. And then I'd use a snare and cautery and I'd remove it in multiple pieces. Um, so that's kind of the two main, uh, tissue resection techniques that we have. Um, so this was a sequel lesion and again just grossly looking at it looks pretty smooth and it's again predominantly spreading laterally so this is a non-granular lesion and then it's a bit subtle and difficult to appreciate but probably on this view you can see that there's a slight depression in the middle um, so this was a non-granular pseudo-depressed lesion and again we did a bit more of a detailed exam which i'm not showing here but again, had some high-risk uh, features on the microscopic exam as well. Um, so this lesion, again, we decided to remove in one piece via ESD. And again, this ended up having superficial carcinoma. And you can see here, it's going just past the muscularis mucosa into the superficial um, uh, submucosa. So this way, we're able to be confident of the vertical and lateral margins. The pathologist can tell us things quite accurately. And Otherwise, it had no high-risk features and was a curative resection. If we removed it via piecemeal EMR, some of the worry is that if your specimen ends up having kind of the area of carcinoma uh, bisected, which may not be uncommon, especially if you're moving it in pieces, suctioning it up through the scope, things get fragmented further, it's very difficult or impossible for them to tell you the margins. And these patients, like that study I mentioned at the beginning, often go to surgery unnecessarily. So I'll move on to just some of the gross morphologic features that, again, usually indicate something more advanced is there. And I think most of these everyone's aware of um, subconsciously, but it's just a matter of kind of explicitly stating them or, or, or seeing them. So there's fold con convergence, a demarcated depressed area, stock or base swelling, spontaneous bleeding, and kind of this chicken skin mucosa. 
So fold convergence is just that. So you see these folds here, there's three folds that all of a sudden converge and come together at this lesion. Uh, this ended up being a massively submucosal invasive carcinoma that was resected surgically. This was a case actually um, that one of our colleagues, Sunil, removed for me. So it was referred to me for resection and we saw it and, you know, again, three folds converging here. Um, and this ended up being a T3N1 uh, cancer that uh, Sunil resected. Demarcated depressed area. So this is a lesion in the rectum that, again, was depressed. But within the depressed area, there was a clear demarcation area. And this was an SM3 mucinous adenocarcinoma with lymphovascular. And this here is, again, depressed lesion with a demarcated area. It was the lesion on the previous slide that was resected surgically, T3 and 0. Stock so or base you, swelling. Can you, can you yeah. go back again? What, what do you mean by demarcated? Just so, for example, you see the center is depressed. Yeah. So... And then when you just look at it here, you see there's a demarcation between here, oh, yeah. like this area. So it's not only has a depression, but there's a difference in the appearance. There's a, a demarcation area. And same here, you can kind of appreciate that, yes, this area in the middle is depressed, but there's a, a difference in terms of a demarcation between those areas. So that's, a, a, again, a feature that makes you think that something more advanced is there. And stalk or base swelling is just that. You know, you have these lesions with a very thick base or, or stalk that looks like it's swollen and it's from tumor infiltration. Uh, this was a SM3 lesion that was detected on, on um, BIT and it was removed uh, via just EMR in one piece, but nonetheless was SM3. Um, so deep submucosal invasion and had a surgical resection subsequently, but there was nothing remaining. And spontaneous bleeding kind of self-explanatory, again, a, a lesion here in the rectum, prior to any manipulation, just spontaneously bleeding. This was a mucinous adenocarcinoma. That was a, a T2 that was removed surgically. So the chicken skin appearance is kind of this whitish kind of uh, skin you see around lesions. And this just has to do with macrophages, lipid-laden macrophages and lamina propria. Um, and they're not neoplastic. So this chicken skin mucosa is not neoplastic epithelium, um, but can often be seen in kind of higher risk lesions. And this was a rectal lesion that was removed and it was just high grade dysplasia. But nonetheless, is something that makes you think if you see this, there may be something um, more advanced. So now we'll kind of go into the microscopic part, but this basically tells you, you know, from a systematic review of about 30,000 lesions, when you just use the gross morphologic features on their own, they have a much lower accuracy in terms of predicting superficial carcinoma uh, as compared to using uh, magnifying endoscopy or NBI, BLI, optical enhancement, any of these image enhanced modalities that you have. So when you do your systematic exam and you see these, some of these high-risk gross features, it's important that you then do a very careful, detailed inspection uh, with your image enhanced modalities that you have available. So very briefly, I'm just going to go over what NVI is, and that's the same with the different technologies, BLI, optical enhancement, but NVI was the first platform, uh, Olympus was the first platform to kind of um, add it, so that's why I'm presenting. So basically, NVI means kind of two wavelengths of light, 415 and 540. The reason why they use them is that they're more readily absorbed by hemoglobin and as such blood vessels. So... 415 wavelength, that penetrates more superficially and it gets absorbed by the capillaries. So the capillaries appear dark, 
on endoscopic exam. The 540 wavelength penetrates more deeply because it's a higher energy. And then you get absorption of a little bit by the capillaries, but by then the, as well as the veins. So that's why you get the kind of dark appearance and the blood vessels appear kind of brown, um, brownish or greenish for the deeper vessels. And this just shows you that again in a schematic 415, 540, this is where it penetrates. And this is um, what you see. And this is the same area, but just with the different isolated wavelengths. And this is, for example, showing you a longer wavelength. It goes more deeply. The deeper veins are, are highlighted. Why is it called narrowband? The reason is, so you have your 415 and 540 wavelengths. And then they also filter out the superfluous wavelengths kind of at the margins. And that just improves the contrast. And hence, it's called narrowband imaging. So with the kind of narrowband imaging, a bunch of classifications came out. There are tons of them that came out and they look at the vessels and the vascular and the, um, the surface. And it became very confusing, especially for North American endoscopists. So that's where the NICE classification came in and said, try to make something a bit more practic practical and, and easy to kind of uh, understand. So now we'll go into the, the microscopic examination. And I'm going to really focus on the NICE classification. So this is the NICE classification. So nice and simple, three main categories. So your type one, which corresponds to your sessile serrated lesions or your hyperplastic polyps. And then your type two, which correlates to your typical adenoma and type three, which correlates with your invasive carcinoma. So when you see your lesion, you look at it grossly and then you can see, well, grossly, is it lighter than the background? Is it darker than the background or is it patchy? So type one typically looks lighter than the background when examined with uh, NBI. And then you're gonna do your detailed examination. So you're gonna look at the microvasculature. So for these type one lesions, you may not see any vessels at all, or you may see some of these lacy uh, vessels like this, for example, kind of these lacy branching dilated vessels. And that's gonna correlate with a sesalcerated lesion or hyperplastic lesion. And then when we talk about the surface, we're talking about the white area. So the white area is the epithelium. So that's what we are talking about when we're talking about the surface. So you may see some kind of dark areas or spots with these serrated lesions. And we'll go over a couple of practice lesions in a bit. Um, and then your adenoma, your typical adenoma, you're gonna see it's darker than the background. And then when you look at the vessels, you see their regular caliber distribution um, throughout the lesion. And then when you look at the white part, you see the same thing in terms of regular width and distribution of the white part, so the epithelium. And this will be your typical adenoma. Your type three lesion, so it may be darker in some areas, it may be lighter in some areas, and that will correspond to avascular areas. So when you look at the microvasculature, you're gonna see, again, very irregular vessels. You're gonna see some large neoplastic vessels, you're gonna see avascular areas, uh, and then when you look at the surface, so looking for those white epithelial um, areas, you generally will see nothing, just kind of amorphous. And this correlates to submucosally invasive carcinoma. So for the most part, this is fairly accurate um, and it allows you kind of to stratify things based on your treatment strategy. So, you know, the, the criticism is that you can't distinguish between serrated and hyperplastic, but that's a kind of other topic. Um, but type two, your typical adenoma is gonna be resected endoscopically and then you're deeply invasive, generally surgically resected. So these are just some practice lesions. So here you can look at the lesion with white light, then NBI. So 
regular repeating vascular patterns, so the dark areas, and then in terms of the white areas, again, regular repeating in terms of the caliber, the width. This is your nice two lesion, and it's a typical adenoma. Here is a lesion where you see, again, it's a bit lighter than the background. All you see is kind of these dark spots, uh, essentially, um, and you don't see any vessels. And this is a nice one lesion. So a hyper, this ends up being a hyperplastic polyp. And then here you start seeing, again, in terms of um, some avascular areas, some hypervascular areas, large abnormal vessels, and then some small little kind of branching uh, or blindly branching vessels. And then the white in terms of the surface, again, completely uh, amorphous and irregular, but a deeply invasive carcinoma. In terms of the shortcomings of the NICE classification, like any classification we make, none of them are perfect, but the studies that included larger lesions and lesions that had high-grade or superficial carcinoma, the accuracy of the prediction drops a fair bit to about 75%, and the high confidence rate of the endospice drops to about 60% or so. And the criticism of the NICE classification is, well, we can't really distinguish between low-grade and high-grade SM1, uh, which clinically is obviously quite important, and we can't distinguish between hyperplastic and serrated lesions. So that's kind of where this JNET classification came in. Um, so I'll just quickly go over it, but basically broke down the type two category into two subcategories, 2A and 2B. So 2A, still the same, kind of correlates to your typical adenoma. The surface is regular and repeating. The vasculature is regular and repeating, no variance in the caliber or distribution. And then 2B, you start seeing some variation in those things in terms of the surface and the vasculature, there is some irregularity in it. And essentially then what 2B correlates to is high grade uh, to superficial submucosally invasive carcinoma. And then you can argue that, you know, it helps uh, decide in terms of what you do treatment wise. The 2A lesions, whether it's traditional polypectomy or EMR is adequate. 2B generally should be removed on block in terms of regardless of the, the technique. And this is just a, a short video to show you kind of the difference between the two. So this is a small adenoma, probably less than a centimeter. But then when you look at it uh, closely, you're going to see the, the difference between the periphery and the center. And this kind of really helps you distinguish between the 2A and the 2B. So this is the 2B area, whereas there's some variability, but it doesn't quite necessarily look like a type 3 lesion where the vessels are completely abnormal. There's avascular areas. And then the periphery is kind of your typical adenoma. So the, the benefits of JNET are overall the high confidence rate is higher. You can differentiate your pathology a bit better in terms of low grade versus high grade to SM1, but it does require magnification. However, um, now you know, in North America, we do have access to magnification on all platforms. So it's not uh, as big a drawback. Um, and we don't have access to kind of the uh, chromoendoscopy, but chromoendoscopy, again, is a, another topic on its own. And as you mentioned earlier about pit pattern, for pit pattern to be done, you need chromoendoscopy. So that's, that's the, the issue in North America here where we don't have access to it. In terms of our experience here in the JNET classification, and this is kind of specifically for those 2B lesions. So the lesions that are in the middle where it's not obvious adenoma or obviously invasive carcinoma. So our accuracy is about 80% in terms of predicting high grade to SM1. 
So these are the lesions that we've removed with ESD that had this categorization. And about 10% of them end up just being low-grade adenomas. So you can argue that basically those are over-treated with ESD. And then 56 are high-grade, 22 SM1, and about 10% are SM2 or greater. Um, so in the vast majority of patients, um, you know, we chose correctly. And the lesions that end up being SM2 or greater, if they have high-risk features, and again, discussion, you know, with you and in our, in our tumor boards, we decide what the next treatment option is. The other important thing that I want to mention is that, and you probably have heard a lot about biopsies. So among the lesions that had biopsies, so about 87 of them, based on the biopsy, 70% are upstaged based on the final pathology. So that means the biopsies are really only accurate in, in about 30%, so which is obviously far less than the, the classification up here where it's at about 80% accurate. So it really shows that you know, the, the biopsies are, are uh, not particularly helpful um, when it's something that's you know, not a deeply invasive carcinoma that you're just going to take to surgery. Basically, what you're saying is like what how it looks to you is going to be much more helpful, yeah, um, than than necessarily biopsy because you just might yeah. miss it or yeah, you know, like, just like for example, you, yeah, you have right. an apple right, and you have like one area that's bruised, right? So, and we just take some random samples of the apple. You know, the vast majority of these little tiny four millimeter samples are going to be normal. So it's, it, but if you examine the apple carefully, you'll see, oh, there's a bruise area. This apple's bad. So it's kind of like the, uh, a, a analogy to kind of give you an idea that biopsies aren't particularly useful. Um, and even when they do have, say, carcinoma, the biopsies are so superficial, they can't tell you the depth, right? So um, really the endoscopic examination and good photo documentation is, is extremely important. All right. Um, so I'm going to skip over the the um, some of this, but basically, uh, this just shows you what I talked about. These are the vessels in the lesions, and the white part is the epithelium. So when we say the surface, this is what we're talking about. So the dark part here is the vessels that we see here in the lesion, and the white part, so there is these areas. That just kind of just that when you compare histology and you kind of help frame it better in your mind. So I'm just gonna skip over the rest of that. And then we'll just come back to our case. This was a lesion in the ascending colon. So we're examining it kind of in retroflexion with white light. So now I'll kind of go through my exam kind of systematically. So grossly looking at it, white light. Then I'm gonna change in this particular platform is LCI. I'm going to go a bit more closely, and then I'll start examining the surface and the vessels again in a bit more detail um, with a little bit of magnification. And then I do it, each one of them separately. So in my mind, I'm going to say, I'm just looking at the vessels, the microvasculature. I'm not paying attention to any of the white, the epithelium. So just the microvasculature. Um, and then after I do that on the entire lesion, I'll go back and do the micro uh, surface and do the same thing. Uh, for those interested, this is kind of indigo carmine, and this just, when we talk about pit pattern, again, for interest sake, the pit is the area where the contrast pools in the middle. And this is, for interest, is a type 4 pit pattern and generally corresponds to a tubular villus adenoma. But this is just showing you, this, for example, doesn't fall into the LST classification. 
So it basically is a protuberant lesion. It's a Paris 1S lesion. And then we just do our systematic review. So this would be a nice two lesion. So the surface, the vasculature is regular, repeating, no variation, uh, JNET 2A. Um, and this just was a tubular villus adenoma removed via piecemeal EMR. We'll go back to the cases that we did in the beginning. That's small adenoma. Uh, I told you the answer to the small lesion in the beginning. So again, it's slightly elevated. So again, for interest, it's a Paris 2A lesion. We look at it with a bit of magnification with uh, NBI or BLI. So the vessels are regular and repeating. The caliber doesn't change very much. The distribution is fairly equal around. And then we look at the surface. So the white part, the marginal, uh, the, um, the epithelium, the caliber stays the same. There's not a high degree of variability or amorphous areas. So this was a nice two JNET2A regular low-grade adenoma. So this lesion here, which you, we went over grossly, there's a couple of high-risk gross features. Periphery has that white chicken skin mucosa, which you can kind of appreciate. There's spontaneous bleeding uh, of the lesion as well. Just with washing, it started bleeding spontaneously. There's a depressed area in, in the middle as well. Um, so those are kind of all high-risk features which we, which we chatted about. And then when you look in more detail uh, with magnification, this is in the area of the depression. Um, so let's just look at the surface. The surface is very difficult to really make out any sort of pattern. In some areas, it's completely lost. But you can see some of the here, the white kind of lines, that's the epithelium. But in other areas, you see it's completely amorphous and lost. And the vasculature as well is completely kind of irregular and some areas are avascular. And if you look at it grossly, if you remember the type three, some areas are darker, some areas are lighter. Again, all those features kind of tell you that this is an invasive carcinoma. This ended up being a SM3 carcinoma with lymphovascular invasion. And this last lesion also helps kind of um, show you the, the importance of a detailed exam. So this is uh, the lesion grossly examined here. And these arrows just show you in terms of the areas with higher magnification. So here, if you look at it closely, looks fairly normal, nice to JNET 2A. This area over here, again, nice and normal, uh, JNET 2A, nice 2A, and same with this area. And, and I did mention it's an LSTG mixed type. So it's that kind of intermediate risk lesion. However, if you notice, there's this area here that's just subtly different from the surrounding area, slightly depressed. So it's a demarcated depressed area. And then when we look at that area in more detail with magnification, you start seeing some irregularity compared to what we saw on the last uh, uh, slide. So definitely some, um, in terms of the surface, some areas where the surface is actually lost um, and some areas where the epithelium is again, quite irregular. And then you look at the vasculature, same in terms of, there's a fair bit of irregularity in it here. So some of the vessels are sparse, some areas are slightly avascular. So this is kind of a borderline lesion. So based on the total examination, we thought probably, I thought it was gonna have a superficial carcinoma in it, to be honest. And the distinction between high grade and superficial carcinoma, it, there's no real easy way to make that delineation, but I thought it was likely gonna have superficial carcinoma as it was a LSTG mixed type, JNET um, 2B. Um, and we removed it in one piece via ESD 
and it ended up being only high-grade dysplasia, but nonetheless completely removed. So um, those are kind of the cases I wanted to go over. Um, I'll just briefly kind of go to the end in terms of our overall um, examination of lesions, just a summary. So we do our macroscopic exam. So you estimate the size, Paris classification. You're gonna do your LST subtypes if it's applicable and look for high-risk gross morphologic features. Then you're gonna do your microscopic examination, whether you have access to uh, magnification or not. But at least the NICE classification is kind of the bare minimum, I think, for the microscopic exam. And then you decide on kind of your treatment algorithm. So is it something that you're going to remove? Are you going to remove it today? Another time, are you going to refer it on to someone else um, and go from there? Um, so how can it help you in your examination, whether you do therapeutics or not? It's going to help you characterize lesions better and tailor your therapeutic strategy. So do I think this is a deeply invasive carcinoma? Am I going to biopsy it and send it to surgery? Is it something that I can remove via endoscopic mucosal resection, so a low-grade adenoma? Is it something that has high-grade or superficial carcinoma or something I'm not sure of? Um, send it for potential endoscopic submucosal dissection. And it will allow you to predict difficulty. So as I mentioned, those non-granular lesions even when they're small, tend to be more difficult in terms of resection. So adjusting your booking times appropriately, if it's something that you're going to think you're going to tackle, or saying, well, this person needs to come back because this is going to take a fair bit of time, even though it may not necessarily be a very large lesion. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at camjsurge. <laughs>